Hello everybody, James here, Franchise University with Shane Douglas himself, there he is. We are going to be talking, uh, rather than Shane Douglas, we're going to be going back to the bad old days of Dean Douglas. It was it six wonderful months with Dean Douglas, it was. And uh, we're going yeah. to be reviewing... Low-paying low Dean Douglas, low-paid <laughs> Dean Douglas. <laughs> we're uh, going to be going through In Your House 3, which is Shane's... Well, it's actually Dean Douglas's WWF pay-per-view debut, because Shane actually was on uh, the Royal Rumble. And I don't know if you're yeah. on one more, but anyway, we'll figure that out. I'm sure in a future podcast we'll review like uh, the 1990-1991 run. But for now, uh, In Your House 3. We've got nothing to plug uh, at the moment, so I'm just going to get straight into it, Shane. And I'm going to give you some preamble to what the news was in the wrestling world in the lead-up to the event of In Your House 3. And for some stupid reason, I'm not even given the date, September something, 95. <laughs> So, a couple of weeks earlier, Tatanka was suspended because of an incident that came to light in late 1994, where a girl claimed she was drugged, sodomized, and had half her head shaved, and was hitting the WWF and individuals oh. with a lawsuit. Do you... I can explain more of this afterwards. Do you remember any of this? Because obviously the actual incident itself was before your time. Yeah, if you'd have asked me that just blank, I wouldn't have remembered the specifics. <clears throat> When you said the head shaving part, then it starts coming back. Uh, yes. But at this time, there was a a culture of that, you know, in the in the business. Uh, GHB, gamma hydroxybutyrate, uh, just out of nowhere, started showing up in gyms, you know, for sale. And it was like $12 a bottle. So the guys were buying like six bottles, eight bottles, 10 bottles of it because it was in a very effective fat burner. If you there was a little blue scoop that I'm not kidding you the 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 it was probably about as big as round as my thumbnail or my pinky nail, and probably about that deep. So you're supposed to take one level scoop of this like white crystally powder looking thing and put it in water, sort of and drink it, and go to bed. And while you were sleeping, it would and it worked. I mean, it would burn fat off you. But the boys, in typical fashion, figured that if you didn't go to bed, if you stayed awake. In about 20 minutes, it would go from sitting here talking to you sober to two cases of beer in you. You know what I mean? Just sober to drunk in a span of 60 seconds. And it, 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 I did it one time, and it made me nauseous. It was, let's want to puke. Um, but the boys, again, figured out, like, hey, if one scoop's, scoop's good, what will three scoops do it if you stay awake? You know, And just all this constant experimenting that the guys had. Um and then it started being used in more nefarious ways like that. Uh, I had never seen it. I'd heard the stories, you know, like in the dressing room, the guy, hey, they won't believe what happened last night. <clears throat> and I remember thinking to myself, there was a night in Portland where we had an afternoon show on a Sunday, and then we have the whole day to kill, which was always nice for the wrestlers because you had the whole evening to hang out and get something to eat and do all of that. Well, that night at the building, Jimmy Hart and Earthquake, John Tenta, had mentioned that they were, because the next day we were going to be in uh, South Dakota, that they were going to fly out that night so that they could go tomorrow to visit Mount Rushmore. I'd never been to Mount Rushmore, so, hey, you guys, mind if I jump in with you? And uh, they said, sure, you know, come on. So I ran back to the hotel, got my stuff, and after the show, straight to the airport and flew out. So I'm Mount Rushmore for the first and only time the next day. Amazing. Um that night, a couple of nameless guys decided to do this, and allegedly, from what was being said in the dressing room, 
did some fairly graphic things with the girls that were unconscious. And I remember saying to these guys, you realize that that is like a felony. Like, you know, that's, that's basically rape. And, uh, and you know, and the guys were like, Oh, come on. No, no. The, the, please understand. And, and, I, and it's hard for me at times I have to remember, like, Oh, I need to explain this. Uh, when we were on the road like that, we were, tre- we were in a bubble that got treated differently. Like, oh, that's one of the WWF wrestlers, you know, and, and sort of like you got put on this pedestal so you could do stuff that the average person couldn't do that you'd get arrested for or whatever and get away with it. Or you'd walk into a store, these guys that are making King's ransom and salaries and, uh, say, Hey, I want these shoes for 50 bucks instead of 200 bucks. And they, okay, sure. You know, that kind of thing. And I, I kept hearing these stories you know, of this stuff being done. And it was, <laughs> from my understanding and listening in the dressing room, this was like a fairly common thing that was being done. And I thought to myself, like, guys, I, I ain't going to be around any of that. You know, it's, uh, I mean, that's just a disaster waiting to happen, right? I, You know, when I say we're in that bubble, yeah, but you can't really rape or, you know, uh, uh, what's the word, you know, like, uh, doing something to the woman's private parts uh, without her knowledge or, or consent, they're not going to be seen too kindly by a jury. Right. So uh, I just thought like, I'm no part of that kind of stuff, you know? And, and I guess in a way people would say, well, yeah, but you know, you should have pointed it out or called it out. Yeah. That wouldn't have really worked in that system because again, we live in a bubble. So that outsiders weren't allowed inside of. So it would have been my word against their word. Uh, and I don't even know the women that they supposedly happened to. They're just two women that went to the hotel with these guys. So, you know, you, you just reach a point where you just feel like really almost straightjacketed. Like, I don't want to be part of that. And I don't want to just turn a blind cheek to it, you know, a blind eye or, a, you know, a cheek to it and, and pretending that this isn't a serious thing. But, you know, like when you're in that, again, in that bubble, and it's the best I can explain it. It doesn't give it a, not, it's certainly not an excuse. But you're so focused on having a good match, getting this character over, and there's so every day there's an onslaught of stuff that's going on, and you can either decide to overflow yourself and overload yourself with this just gluttony of of information, most of it useless, or cut out all that noise and just stay focused on what you're doing. And you know, for me, the realization at that time was, and still in hindsight, is. You know, if I was, uh, if I would have gone to Vince and said, hey, Vince, you know, I think this, you need to get involved in this, most likely he'd have saw, well, this guy's a troublemaker, right? It, you know, get him out of the dressing room, we'll send him home. Um, it, uh, a very different time. Uh, I can honestly say on my two boys and my mother and father's grave, never did that, never would have partaken in it, certainly wouldn't condone it in the sense of if I were there and seeing this happened, uh, happening. Um, but I remember thinking like having these discussions with guys and it wasn't just like that discussion. Another part of that discussion would be how some of the guys were like extraordinarily promiscuous. And, you know, we are talking like just years out of the, like years into this whole AIDS epidemic and, you know, they, they had all the little sayings back then and stuff, you know, if, if I sleep with you tonight, I've slept with all your partners for the last year or whatever. And I'm like, yeah, I'm not really interested in that. Like I, you know, I, I my luck is pretty bad with stuff and somebody's going to catch something they shouldn't catch. It'd probably be me. But a lot of these guys would do it without even protection. 
And thankfully, in hindsight, none of them died, you know, or caught something horrific like that, um, <laughs> that I know of. But uh, yeah, it was just an incredibly, incredibly aberrant time. Like, you know, the, the, the drug usage was so overt and so rampant and so everywhere um, that, again, you could like wallow in that stuff and let that just over just saturate you. Or for me, it was like blinders on and I'm going to focus on what Shane Douglas or in this case, Dean Douglas later or 95 or a young unknown Shane Douglas in 90, what he has to do. Like just to carve my way through this. And to me, like if you're doing something down in your hotel room, that's your responsibility. I, I'm not your dad to come down. Hey, James, you shouldn't or shouldn't be doing that. Uh, mine was, I could take care of me. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, I, I'm surprised that it was only the, the, that one that got identified because there was an awful lot of that kind of stuff. I'm not necessarily just meaning the same exact thing, mm -hmm. but things in that vein, you know, where women were really being, objectified and 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 totally mistreated and uh i think you know i wouldn't call myself well I, i'll be careful in the wording uh having grown up in a house full of women my brother was 10 years older and out of the house from from a very young age he was 10 years older than me so i grew up with a uh an abiding love for women you know my family my sisters and my mother and also a respect for them, you know, especially my mother. I can see how hard she worked and everything. And the idea that somebody would objectify her in a similar way would incense me. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, I, I think I was a little bit ahead of that curve in that respect. But it wasn't something to go into the dressing room and say, hey, everybody got an announcement to make. Shane Douglas thinks, uh, you know, <laughs> the fuck are you? Get the fuck out of here, right? It's, uh, yeah, but it, yeah, bad time, bad time in the industry. Uh, now I wish I'd actually said that uh, said this beforehand, but Tatanka was basically found completely innocent. Apparently, he was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Uh, hmm. The name of the person, the main suspect, we can either say it or not. It's, I think it's already fairly public knowledge who it is. But uh, shall I say the name? Who suspected? I, I would. I would personally, be, you know, even though the statute limitations run out on it, 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 it that could be taken as a slander. You know. Uh, you know, making the accusation to somebody, even though it's fairly public knowledge, I'd be careful. I'll personally. I'll, I'll leave it out then. But if you if you want to figure it out, Kevin Nash famously threw out this guy's name some years earlier. Uh, to tank would <laughs> return to the company early 1996. Uh, I'm going to give you a load more news, but maybe we'll focus on this one because I'm sure you just you're just going to love this bit of news that Jesse the Body Ventura on September 11th defeats. Titan Sports and Courts over unpaid videotape royalties, where he was told nobody received royalties unless uh, it was a best of Roddy Piper or Jim Duggan or Hulk Hogan videotape. It was later revealed that Hogan, Mr. T, and others did in fact receive videotape royalties from tapes other than best ofs and so forth. And because the WWF lied to Ventura's agent Barry Bloom, Jesse's pre existing agreement with the WWF was null and void. Jesse took home $809,000 plus all legal fees and court costs. So he took over a million dollars from Titan, all told. Yeah. Uh, hurrah, right? I mean, it's, uh, you know, and, and that, take my feelings about Vince and having worked for that company away from this. I am a firm believer if you and I, and, and I can prove it in practice, when we did hardcore, uh, hardcore homecoming, uh, Steve and Mike O'Neill, Cody Michaels, uh, uh, I'm trying to remember Kevin's last name. Kevin from uh from uh the uh 
the the videotape company. Um, it'll again, all these names are so bad with anymore, but chair shots, my excuse. But there were five of us. Now, this was an ECW reunion show of sorts. None of these guys had anything to do with ECW. So I could have sat down at that table and said, hey, I'm taking 90%. You guys all get 2.5%. What did I say? No. I, I mean, it's, but I'm a firm believer that if you and I are doing equal work, that uh, we should all make the equal share of it. Right. And, 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 and so divvy that out. You know, so that said, like into the business and how that 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 carted over, like in something with Jesse's case, uh, the I, I can assure you, the royalties that are sent out are so minuscule that you know it, it doesn't even warrant the gas to run to the bank to cash the check, honestly. And uh, having never been paid a dime for any of my royalties from WWF from ECW, uh you know, the, the footage that they've used and all, all the rest of that. Now I've always maintained that if Vince would make, let's just round this up. If Vince makes a thousand dollars with Shane Douglas's name and face, I'm not suggesting that I should make 999 of it, but shouldn't I make a buck of it? 10 bucks of it, a hundred bucks. of it. Like what's the fair amount uh, that we'd be talking about there. And, you know, there's this long and laborious and totally unrealistic clause in the contract that says you have the right to audit the company anytime you want up to one time a year. Well, to do a audit on the company, the size of the WWF WWE now would be, I'm guessing tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars to like go through this forensically and figure out like where this money all went and everything. So it's a, it's a completely unrealistic, uh, uh, clause in the contract. And, uh, so that when somebody like Jesse struck back and was able to prove or his, or his agent struck back and was able to reach in and say, Hey guy, you've made a boatload of money with us and we want this money back. Uh, I, to me, I say kudos because the, it's not like he's going and saying, Hey, I heard you made a million bucks last year with Brett. I'd like to have a thousand of that or a hundred thousand of that. Uh, this is money made from his face and likeness that was sold specifically and only because it was Jesse, the body Ventura and Vince lining his pockets. <laughs> I don't know how the how that agreement has worked out today, but in the in every contract I ever had with WCW or WWF, the royalties were a joke to be made of. You you know WCW gave you like when I, my first with them was a third to Johnny, a third to me, and a third to the company. Sounds fair, right? No, it sounds equitable. You're getting the same as each of us. The problem with that was it was excluding all costs. So, boy, to put out a $10 T-shirt, you wouldn't believe the cost that the company had in putting out a $10 T-shirt was like nine thirty-seven or something. And so you're splitting up basically like 50, 60 cents per shirt. You know, so each of us is getting 17 cents per shirt or some you know, crazy thing like that that's just not even worth your time to even sign one, let alone worrying about it. And uh, that plays out to the story that I'm sure some of the fans out there have heard me say uh, when we were doing the – uh, they used to have the Great American Bash Tour all summer. And Johnny and I sent every day with like Brad Armstrong and Pillman and Zank and a bunch of us like that, the younger guys, to these shows in the afternoon. And we'd go and we'd have a meet and greet and they would sell tons of merchandise. Well, Johnny and I would sit there and sign. I mean, they had bracelets and uh, sunglasses and hats and bandanas and T-shirts and rip-away shorts. And, and these things are coming through. We're signing 
hundreds of these things a day, right? Like there's still a boatload. And each one of these, okay, these shorts are say 15 bucks, five bucks, five bucks, five bucks. And, you know, put that through a single day, let alone the entire like 75 days of the tour. And I, my mother was at home like, getting my checks at the time because I wasn't married or, or dating. And, uh, and every couple of weeks, anything on the, no, 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 no. Finally, one day she called and she said, uh, Hey, you got two checks today. You got a green one and a yellow one, different envelopes. I thought oh, it must be the merch. Open it up. I'm thinking in my head, like twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000. And she comes up and she goes, well, it's not very good. I said, well, what's not very good. She said 900. She said nine, nine, 10. I went $910. She goes, no, $9 and 10 cents. I about had a stroke. I was going to kill somebody. And, uh, you know, so the, the companies, I mean, shame on them. You know, again, like you're, it's a mutual thing. If you're going to take the talent that you think I have, uh, and you're going to parlay that out there in a videotape and t-shirts, merchandise, whatever. And then you make some chunk of money on that. You know, some people might say 1%, some might say 99%, but there's got to be a point in there that's considered industry averages. And, and like, what is, you, you know, like, like somebody like the undertaker, for instance, you put something out of his and it's going to sell a gazillion, you know, of it. And uh, I maintain that any talent, if uh, Butch Patrick had played Eddie Munster on the Munsters, is still getting residual checks today from the Munsters and fairly decent ones. I would imagine that Shane Douglas and Jesse Ventura and all the other people I've mentioned, everybody that's ever been in those positions should get their fair share of that money, not minus costs and all the rest of this stuff. Uh, so anyway, kudos to Jesse. Fantastic. <laughs> hey, we could get into a whole um thing about the WWE network and how there's no DVDs anymore and how nobody gets residuals, even though they have like a million or so subscribers every year. But we're not, so uh, we'll yep. leave that for another day. But that's uh, another well, there, conversation. Well, there is again one of the clauses of the contract was that uh, something along the lines of uh, I'll, I'll put it in uh, layman's terms. I agree that videotapes and this and this and this and that books and magazines and everything else. And then quote, any other technology now in existence or created in the future. Okay. Well, what human being sitting here today can say, okay, in 10 years, this is where cell phones will be, or this is where computers will be. Or my guess is we'll be at some point beaming around like star Trek, right? You want to go to New York? There you go. You're in New York. Uh, it's impossible for any human being sitting here today to say, I'm going to give up this right 20, 30 years or longer down the road. And you can just make as much money as you want with it. It doesn't matter if you're using my footage and my likeness that I worked hard to get over. Um, I, I don't know if it's ever been tested in court. I guess there's probably some kind of history to that that is probably not related to wrestling. Uh, but I'd, I'd be curious to dig into that and find out like what the legalities are behind that. Because again, like I, if Vince is going to take the time to, or whoever, take the time to make this stuff, produce this stuff, advertise it, sell it and everything, of course they're deserving of their share. But like, what is the fair share to me or to the talent that's that's behind? The only reason somebody buying that, nobody walks up and says, man, I hate Jesse Ventura, but you know what? I'm going to buy this because Vince is putting it out. Mm-hmm. Um, it's because of Jesse Ventura. So it's uh like I said, I'm sure we'll dabble on this a lot in the future because this is going to be one of those things that recurringly comes up. 
Absolutely. Uh, we're going to give you some more news now, but I'm just going to speed through these. So this is in the lead-up to In Your House 3. Steve Austin is fired from WCW. Gene Oakland resigns with WCW for 250000 per annum, plus a share of the 1900 hotline and bonuses. There's stories with that, I know. Uh, Cactus Jack is laying down heavy promos, and luchadors have been tearing up in ECW. Ric Flair's Gold's Gym in St. Martin is destroyed by a hurricane. And, of course, the business-savvy Ric Flair didn't buy any fucking insurance. <laughs> and uh, he lost uh, six figures on that one. Ahmed Johnson signs with the Federation. A- Adam Bomb turn- turns down a WWF return. Uh, the Turner Broadcasting, uh, uh, Turner Broadcasting Time Warner merger is publicly announced in 1995. So it takes five and a half years for that to get through. But now we're at the pay per view, September 24th, 1995, live from Saginaw, Michigan. 6,500 in attendance. Uh, these In Your House pay-per-views, like all the original In, in Your House pay-per-views, was released for a cut price, fourteen ninety-five for a two-hour show rather than a three-hour show. Now, I mentioned this to you before we went on air, and you <laughs> didn't realise, and hopefully hopefully, uh, I've saved it for now, so hopefully uh, I'll, I'll refresh your memory. There's a meeting backstage at this pay-per-view. All talent meeting, uh, so I'm presuming you were there. So under the spectre of the burgeoning WWF versus WCW Monday Night Wars, an all talent meeting occurred earlier in the day for all talent where Vince McMahon announced that Bill Watts would be heading up the booking end and creative aspects of the WWF of the WWF going forward. Uh, does that jog your memory, Shane? Yes, yeah. Big news to me because, like, I again, I got my break with Bill Watts. And... <clears throat> He had a great head for the for the business, but he also had that that overbearing personality, larger than life uh, overbearing personality. So I was curious to see, like, a on the surface, it was good news to me because I knew he valued my work, um, and I thought he would take in a different direction because I knew the one thing with Bill Watts was Bill Watts fervently believes counter to Vince that the heels should should be predominant. The baby face should always be chasing and getting screwed um, where Vince thinks the fans should always go. I'm happy. So for me, that was a welcome thing to hear and and it would play out in some interesting ways. With, um, with that being said, Bill gets up, uh, basically makes a speech saying that he's taken over the creative reins, but Vince McMahon uh, will have final say, but he will not be butting in with his own opinions. Now that's, as we know, is pretty laughable because I think Bill Watts lasts yeah. about three weeks, and then Vince McMahon just screws up all his creative, and then he says, "There's only what, what's the famous line? There's only one Titan in Titan Sports, and you're it, Vince. I'm going back home to Bixby." Yeah. So I didn't even write that down. I remembered that. So anyway, um, <laughs> <laughs> with the introduction of Watts, uh, apparently. Uh, especially uh, okay there's a couple of things with this so bear with me my mind's all over the place uh, especially considering he made a decent amount of enemies for himself in WCW as well do you remember the the, the talent's reaction when Bill Watts is announced yeah I I think for the going right down along like sort of like today Republican and Democrat right so if uh, if you were on the Vince side of the fence and were a baby face and you knew Vince loved pushing baby faces and you understood what Bill was. I'm sure you probably went like, "Ooh, shit! Like this ain't good for us." And you know, for those of us that were heels and had worked for Bill before, um, again, like I've said a thousand times, I, I never advocated his style. But as I got older, and I'm, how many times in interviews you heard me say, "Well, Bill Watts taught me this," or "I learned that from Bill Watts." He certainly knew the craft, and I, I and I'm one of the people that agree with the heel 
being, you know, if the heel is always subservient to the baby face, to me, that makes the baby face almost obnoxious, right? Like he's good. He knows he's good and he proves that he's good. Uh, there's a reason there's kryptonite in, in Superman comic books. And, uh, you know, to me, like the heel, that's the whole point, right? Is, is the heel is such a dastardly villain that the baby face just gets screwed and gets screwed and gets screwed. It's, I don't know of a time that the fans ever went, well, that heel screwed that baby face. I'm never supporting him again or her again, right? If anything, it's like, oh, I'm going to be more behind him because he's got to get this jerk. And, uh, you know, so I we saw it as a, as a good thing. But, you know, Bill and his zeal, zeal in, in WCW putting in the no top rope rule. Um, it's like, you know, you, you can't up the take- max as well, didn't he? Yes, they're yeah. on the floor, and you know we weren't allowed to be out of the ring. Couldn't go over the railing, you know things like that. That uh, that wrestling had already started to dip its toe into pretty hard, if not impossible, to pull back from that. And uh, you know you, you could always make the argument. The purists could always make the argument. Well, Bill was forcing the talent to be more creative. Yes, but you know somebody Pillman at that time or later Sabu and ECW take the top rope away from them, and you've really neutralized like their gifts. So, uh, yeah, there, and I'm sure there was a lot of the guys on, on the heel side of the fence that saw Watts, you know, with that, oh, furry eyeball, right? Like, was, yeah. uh, I remember my feeling like it was going to be, this was more positive than negative. And, and I think in large part because I thought that Vince would sort of tamp down those rougher edges and free Bill up to be creative. And, and uh, you know, and I thought, I think Bill has now reached the place where I wish he would have reached then, you know, and found in the serenity and religion and, you know, become a, he's a, if you see him now, he looks so calm. So Bill always looked like he was ready to explode. And, uh, you know, I'm happy that he's found that, uh, I wish he would have had at least a, an inkling of finding that at the time where he could have self-censored himself in places that eh, maybe this ain't the best way to approach this. Um, and to be honest, I think in, in short order, it would rear its head. Like somebody like him, especially if I'm in charge and supposed to be in control of this. Uh, there was a dark match with Shawn Michaels and I in, it was uh, in Indiana in uh, uh, the name of school escapes me. I'll pop in my head in a second. And we're circling around in a dark match. This is very first thing of the night. I know what they're doing. They want to see what kind of chemistry he and I have. And we're circling around, circling around. We go to lock up, and Sean takes a step in and takes a flat back bump, and he's laying on his back laughing. Well, I knew in that moment Bill Watts has got steam coming out of his ears back there, mm-hmm. wondering why I'm not stretching his ass right now. And uh, and I looked down at him. I said, unless you want your ass stretched, best get back to your feet. He jumped up and hand over his mouth and said, take it easy, Dean. Take it easy. Calm down, Dean. And I knew Bill was losing his mind back there. The rest of the match was I would call something. He would go, no, this, and I go, no, backdrop, goddammit, whatever. It was like we were fighting out there, and I'm supposed to be calling the match. The only time I, it was the first time I ever, I don't think I did many times after this, but the first time, certainly, that I talked back to Bill, I walked back and he stood and looked at me and he went, like, what the hell was that? And I put my hand, I said, don't, I don't want to hear it. I said, talk to your golden boy. And it wasn't long after that, we had another meeting in Michigan, I think Lansing, Michigan. It was the night that we heels laid all the baby faces out and Bill had called a meeting earlier in the day and Bob Backlund was in there. Uh, Mabel was in there. Uh, 
uh, Kevin Nash was in there. Scott Hall was in there. Sean was supposed to be there. <clears throat> it was a room full of people. And Bill, the meeting starting at, say, 3 o'clock. Okay, at 3 o'clock, Bill starts. And a few minutes later, Sean comes walking in. And Sean had this obnoxious knack of chewing his gum like that. So he takes a chair, walks right in front of the room, and sits the chair down backwards. So he's, you know, back in the chair right here, and he's chewing his gum. And Bill goes up to the whiteboard, and he's writing. He stops. He looks back at him for a second, goes back to the whiteboard, and starts again. Again, this happens two or three times. And finally, Bill puts the marker down, walks over to him, puts his hand in his mouth, pulls the gum out, puts it on the back of the chair. And you can see Sean was taken back like, this is guy think he is right. And Bill goes right back to the whiteboard and starts, you know, tonight we're going to do this thing where the heels are going to run roughshod. And, and you can see all the baby faces, like, Oh, the boo-boo face. Ooh, oh, can't do that. You know? Well, the outcome of that was initially, uh, I, there were so many people in the ring that Sean and I agreed we'll do war stuff on the floor. So I jump him, pick him up vertical and drop him on the steel stairs. They took a great bump. A woman sitting right here in the audience was so incensed, she hit me with her purse and kept trying to hit me with the purse. And again, as a heel, you know, like, okay, this is getting what we're desiring here, right? This is what we want these fans to do. <clears throat> Bill was gone, like, either the next day or the next week. It wasn't long after that. Like, oh, my God, just destroyed the baby faces. Again, not a single fan, certainly not this lady with the purse going, that's it. I'm never buying a ticket to WWE again because Shawn Michaels just got beat up. Uh you know, it's a, it's a shame because I think Bill could have been the right. Like, to me, Bill and Vince, opposite ends of the uh, spectrum, I think would have been a good balance. And uh, I'm sure there would have been tenuous times for both of them. You know, this one not liking what that one wants and vice versa. But they would have been a good compendium, I think, uh, at that time. And badly needed in the WWF. You know, the baby faces were so predominant. They didn't really need my support because... They're going to win anyway. I know that. So, uh, and that, I think that's what Bill was trying to push back against. Uh, I was just looking up before. Is it Valparaiso University? Valparaiso, Indiana. Yes, sir. Valparaiso. Yes, sir. Uh, there you go. I just thought you'd like to know that because <laughs> we always like to be thorough here, or at least yes. attempt to be thorough. Uh, in the same meeting, Vince talked about WCW Nitro going head to head with Raw, very anti WCW, of course. But I'm sh not. I'm fairly sure that the smart guys in the crowd there weren't rooting for WCW to fail because why would you root for alternative employment, essentially? Uh, you know, yeah. routes to uh, alternative employment to fail. Having said that, uh, Vince also addresses Lex Luger, basically saying we'll see him in court because, as we all know, the story is very famous. Lex Luger was out of contract. And obviously, there's no legal thing that Vince could do. Uh, Lex right. was out of contract. He'd given his notice uh, proper time. He was working on a per-day deal, essentially. And then, you know, secretly, he goes over to WCW, um, signs quite a low contract, actually, because Eric Bischoff was leery about using him in the first place because of uh, attitude problems and stuff that he'd heard about him, and uh, mm. etc. But what were your feelings when you first saw Lex Luger, or heard Lex Luger, had jumped ship... And also um, wearing that hideous white shirt with no collar on it. It's like, why would anyone wear that in pub? Anyway, that's a bugbear of mine. I really hate <laughs> collarless shirts. Uh, but yeah, the uh, Lex Luger jump and um, how shocked you all were when that happened. At the time, I again, like as you mentioned, it like, pops back in my head at the time. 
we in the dressing room weren't privy to like where his contract was or wasn't. You know, you, you, at least some of us got the understanding that when you hear something, don't just doesn't necessarily make it true, right? So, uh, you know, there was the the scuttlebutt. Saying his contract was up. Okay, well, I don't know that. I'm not his lawyer, and I don't have it in front of me. And so there was a bit of to correct one thing you said about like the desire for like the guys in the dressing room to the other companies. I don't think anybody desired to like put anybody out of business from the wrestler's point of view. Cause again, these are potential workplaces, but there was always an intention regardless of who I was working for to best them, to top them, to be better than them. And, you know, I guess a little, a little pride thing that goes into that, whether it's company A, B or C. Um, but I remember like the, the scuttlebutt being like the biggest talk in the dressing room scuttlebutt among the boys was, uh, I wonder if his contract really was up. And then somebody would allege, like, well, I know it's up because, you know, what? okay, well, again, I don't know if he signed an extension. I don't know if there's some clause in there that extends it for some period. Uh, it just was one of those things that you, you took note of because for us, being able to go back and forth was, was lucrative. You know, if you go to, if company A has you and B and C want you, you know, you can, if you have an opening, it's easy to do and, and it can be, fairly good for you and your family. And, uh, but it, like my overarching thing of it was that most of us were like, just curious as to where it stood and then like watching it, like, okay, where's this going to go? You know, like the threats of lawsuits and stuff, as I recall, didn't materialize. And he just sort of stayed in WCW. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, again, I would never begrudge anybody. Like I, each one of these guys. And I, 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 I guess I'm biased, but I have been really amazed that, what good businessmen so many people in this business are because you have to be like, if you're going to survive in it and you, you know, like when you're watching somebody make a move like that, okay, you're taking note, right? Because if I ever have to do this, I want to see like, you know, what did he do? What didn't he do? Uh, if anything proper or improper legal or illegal. And, uh, same thing. Like when, when, uh, uh, within like what a few weeks span, uh, Brian Pillman had showed up in ECW, WCW, and WWF. Mm-hmm. And there were a few of those guys that were sort of rude and those guys that were floating in between. And without knowing, you had to know that, well, they're, this guy's got a, an attorney with a lunk brain. If he's telling him, hey, you're under contract to ECW, but you're going to go ahead and pop up over here or there. So you, like all these things were happening sort of like in that same time frame. Like you'd see Pillman come and zip, 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 and then – some short period later or before rude would do the trajectory and, uh, and, and just all of it, like you're taking note of it and filing it just in case you'd have to use that down the road. Uh, but the contracts in the bigger companies until WCW were like pretty predatory. My contract with WWF, uh, which I still have and, and can prove, uh, was that they were guaranteeing me. This is my contract was that they would guarantee me 10 shots per year at $50 per shot. So basically it's a $500 contract that I'm giving you all these rights for. And yeah, some guys went through there and made a lot of money and others didn't, um, you know, and, and really I think to the, uh, if, if not illegal boys, like skirting right along that line, you know, it's, uh, you know, the idea that I could, film you take footage of you doing what you're best at and putting it out there and making a lot of money with it and going, wait, you want money for that? I mean, I, I, I made you famous. Well, yeah, but you, you only kept me on because I was good enough to be 
on with you. And so there's obviously a give and take. And again, like that's going to be one of those things that for time immemorial, we'll be able to argue. Somebody thinks it should be all of it. Somebody think none of it and everybody else in between somewhere, but there's got to be a point to where it is or it isn't. Uh, it's either valid or it's not valid. And you know, that's uh, more for the, for the Diana Myers of the world. <laughs> hey, well, uh, with the Kung Lee lawsuit with UFC now TKO, uh, I don't know how familiar you are with that, but um, they've been alleging a monopoly UFC have been running and, uh, you know, uh, artificially keeping fighter wages low. But we'll see what happens with that for uh, yep. later dates. Uh, one more thing that Vince said in this meeting backstage was that Hulk Hogan will never work in the WWF again. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. Oh, jeez. Anyway. Let's go to the show itself. Pre-show dark <laughs> match. Fatu defeats Hunter's Helmsley in 10-20. We're not talking about that. Uh, then the commentators. Apparently, um, they went for a three-commentator uh, team because maybe Nitro was doing it, and so they had uh, Jim Ross, Jerry Law, and Vince McMahon. Welcome, everyone. I still think Vince is a yes. commentator. Oh, he's a, he's a great announcer. Phenomenal. Yeah. I, I, do you know, it's, it's, it's someone who can't, you know, he's not a Joey Styles as far as you can... He can tell you what the real right. name of the Taz mission is or something like that. But for somebody who builds excitement and is just an absolute P.T. Barnum-style carny, but in the best way, you know, yes. a, 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 like the, the circus master, the ringmaster, he does yes. a fantastic job and always did. He there, there's a, there, I'm sure there's 10 million segments. <clears throat> but if you want to see how good Vince is as an announcer, uh, I saw that somebody sent it to me a couple of years, two, three years ago. Uh, it's the first match from Bruno back after the broken neck. Stan Hansen, who was 19, 20 years old at the time, he broke Bruno's neck. With By the way, it was a body slam, not a lot of lariat. Um, he just dropped him. You know, and he said, <laughs> big old dimples, man, I thought my career was over. You know, and here it made his career. Um, but in that first match back, Madison Square Garden steel cage match, now, this is the era before ring music and all of that. So here comes Stan Hansen down, you know, and he's walking around the cage and feeling it. And you can you just tell by his body language, trepidatious. He's he's showing the, the crowd that he's scared of this. Finally gets in, and then there's a, a an ungodly long lull between him coming out and Bruno coming out. Vince's commentary during that lull is amazing because he is watching 25,000 people waiting for this. You can feel this, this rumble in the crowd. And then there's nothing. It's just dead air. You know, it's just his commentary to that. At one point he said, uh, Bruno San Martino, the living legend, Bruno San Martino, ever the champion is giving his opponent time to think about it. And I thought it was just such a brilliant comment because he's, he, you know, we've all been there as an announcer, right? You're sitting there, there's nothing to talk about. You got to fill it up with something. But like you said, like PT Barnum and all the good side of what Carney is filled that up and, and made the story even before Bruno walked out. The match itself is nothing, you know, cage matches are always, from a wrestling point of view, sort of down a few rungs. It's, you know, it's, it's, you're not getting a, a Luthez classic, right? It's, uh, and it, this is pretty much what he expected to be, just brawling and throwing into the cage and everything. But Vince's commentary throughout that, Bruno's first match after the broken neck, was superb. And for me, like growing up, 
always Vince was always the the commentary guy, right? Uh, I I'm sure there's places where he crapped the bed, but I don't recall him at the top of my head. I remember him being incredibly entertaining and getting over exactly what was on the on the screen at the time. Fantastic announcer. The only the only and times it, I, it pains me to say that <laughs> <laughs> the only times that I really they're just more charming is when Vince is absolutely sure it's not going to be the finish, and he goes, "This won't get him." Oh, it did. I think he'll just move on. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Or or he'll say, you know, you know, wait, was that was that three? Was that three? Mm. You know, and on a false finish, he's getting the excitement of for the viewer up. You know, it's just again, just really brilliant, brilliant commentary. When I think of Vince as a commentator, and I will move on in a second, it's always back body drop. Just I, yeah. it's his own little just <laughs> trademark of just that one line. Yes, yeah, I always enjoyed him as a commentator. I thought he was fantastic at it, and did on this show last night. We will move on to the first match, Tio Savio. I've always got to call him Tio Savio. I've, I've spoken to Savio a few times. He's a really cool dude. Uh, versus, oh, great guy. Versus yeah. Waylon Mercy. Uh, for those who don't know, Danny Spivey. Uh, just like you had tenure with the WWF previously, and then that slate was wiped straight clean, never referenced beforehand, then you were a brand new character. Um, do you want to talk about the match itself, or should we talk? I think we're going to focus on Danny here, but uh, do you want to talk about the match yeah. itself first? Yeah, I, the the one takeaway for me, like watching it again, because I know these guys, right? And I'm watching it, and it I didn't remember seeing it back then as pronounced, but now like I don't know if you've seen Danny lately. He's really hobbled, like his legs really bad, right? Uh, knees, big guy like that. You can see it in this match. You know, like you can see him really. You know, he's he's trying his best, and he's and he's doing a decent job of it. But you can see his legs are 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 going, and. uh that was the thing that really came over to me. Like he's, if you like watch, he's really given the effort to like hitting the ropes and things. And I mean, when you're, when your knees are bad like that, it's just a, you know, it's, a, it's not a question of like, I always say like when I'm telling kids in seminars, in seminars, if I came up and it took a baseball bat and cracked you in the knee, you just had knee surgery. Yeah. And I said to you, Hey James, there's 10 million bucks on the other side of this room. If you can get there in three seconds, it's yours. You're going to try like hell, but I guarantee you're not getting there. You know, it's not a question of you have the heart or whatever. If the body won't respond, it won't respond. And I, I, I could see again. I don't know if it's that pronounced to the average viewer watching it, but like I'm sure that the the hardcore fans, the you know the hard nosed fans that watch all the time, and certainly to our trained eye, you can really see he's he's hampered. And and what shocked me with it was the finish because it looked to me like. They were, and I, and I thought they did a great job. He and Savio. It appeared that this was going to be a Whalen uh, Mercy win, right? And then out of no place, and Moose told me last night that he was undefeated going into that match. Mm -hmm. Correct? Yeah, I think so. And yeah. so he comes in and, and loses. So now was he gone shortly after that? Uh, he's gone. Um, I actually wrote it down somewhere. In fact, it might be on the next page. Bear with me. It is, I believe, within two weeks he's gone. Yeah. This is, I think, his last pay per view ever. And after this, he just retires. He does like one more match yeah. in like 2015 as a little thing. Um, I was looking out because I knew that he was very injured, and that's why his run was so short in the WWF mm -hmm. as Waylon Mercy. But um, the character, so it's Max Cady from Cape Fear, right? Mm, I say yes. that as someone who's never seen Cape Fear, but I, I know the name of it. I should watch it. Great movie, yeah, great movie. Remake, uh, by the way. The remake, yeah. This that's 91. Yeah. It's something probably like right that. in that range, sure. Yes, great movie. Uh, Waylon Mercy is a as a, a character 
uh, forget about the film, but did you think it worked for wrestling because it's the whole Southern draw, you know what I mean, kind of thing? Yeah. Yeah, to me, it, it looked because again, Danny Spivey was pretty prolific in the business, right? It's not like he's some unknown. And to me, this is what was wrong in wrestling at that time that gave rise to ECW. You had goons and gobbledygookers and deans and, you know, like every incarnation of like Duke, Duke the Dumpster Drossy. Like it, it really looked like a bunch of comic book nerds just like sort of vomited all of this stuff up. Like these were not. I, I don't know your taste that well. For me, I grew up watching wrestling. That was doing nothing to draw me to the table. It was turning me off. And which, again, is why I gravitated towards like the NWA and WCW. Uh, and then later with ECW, <clears throat> you know, this was like suddenly our baby. We could make this into our image of what we see and what we want. And, and, and like for Danny, I, I just, you know, in typical professional fashion, he went out and tried to make that work. You know, but look, my my big takeaway in watching the In Your House last night was when you're looking at ringside, like comparative to like what you see today as fans, and then you say in the in the back face and the hard cam, it's all young girls sitting out there, and my guess is like these young girls are not watching this and saying, "Oh, this is the guy from the movie" or whatever. It's just they're not really sure. They just know he's like sort of like a weird guy, and you know, maybe sociopathic. Some of them might be thinking. But the idea that even a movie as big as Cape Fear, the remake wasn't at that time with De Niro, um, the idea that that's just going to be ubiquitous in the Ethernet, everybody's going to get this, I, I think is a big stretch. And you know the Dean character, right? Seven PhDs. Well, anybody that's an educator knows like seven PhDs would be you know pretty hard to pull off, uh, no matter how brilliant you are. I think Albert Einstein had one. Um, so, you know, it's, you know, it, it, again, just the corn balliness of it. Like, mm -hmm. you know, you're going to throw this stuff out there. I remember we, I was telling Moose this last night as we were watching the first night we got there for the Thanksgiving show and there's this egg, gigantic egg sitting next to the ring. Okay. Like what the hell's with the egg? You know, it's, you know, it seemed weird. And I just figured like, a, like a, one of their decorations, how they would, you know, set stuff about the, you know, different, uh, props and stuff around the building. Never saw Hector get into the gobbledygooker. Hector Guerrero, the great Hector Guerrero. Uh, never saw him got into the get into the character, you know, the, the costume, and certainly never saw him load up into the egg. Um, but I remember watching on the monitor when he started coming out of that egg, and like literally, like cringing, like oh my god, no. Uh, Hector was a great worker. Um, you know, comes from, of course, the great Guerrero family. Uh, you know, and to do that to him is just like, you know, okay, I'm sure there's part of some young kid going, oh, mommy, there's a turkey on TV. But like the fan base, the wrestling, the core audience that you're playing to are all looking at this and going, what the fuck? Mm -hmm. You know, it just, it, and, and again, I think it was all that was wrong that would later give rise to the attitude era, right? Like the backlash to that, that again, one of the articles I read the other day said that other than Taker, uh, uh, Mick, um, Austin, and uh, uh, The Rock. Take those four out, and it wasn't a very profitable era. It wasn't a very successful era. Uh, you, you know, so people, I, I think, you know, today, even like we hear attitude area, you think, okay, like big ratings and all that. And, you know, when you start splicing down into it a bit, not quite as much so as you would have thought it to be or the way that they portended to be.
Um, you know, so, but that I think was was the, definitely a backlash to all of that. Like, I'm sure there must have been a lot of fans going like, dude, like, what the fuck? And, you know, the, the, the argument back was, OK, let's go way over this way then. Um, with the with the egg because you brought the egg up right so uh, apparently there's a lot of theories within the business about who's going to come out of the egg. Do you remember at the time what you thought was going to happen? Because there was a couple of I won't tell you what they are yet. I'll tell you after what you say. What what other wrestlers thought it was going to be? Yeah, I I don't recall hearing that night. Honestly, I I think I'm pretty sure I was believing like okay, this is just like some sort of sort of corny prop out here because it's. You know, thanks. What the connection was with Thanksgiving, I don't. I don't know. Well, but. well, well, the egg actually traveled like to superstars tapings and stuff like that for like a, a couple of months beforehand, and they just go, mm. "Here is an egg. It's going to hatch at Survivor Series, and that's it." Oh, I, I don't recall that portion of it, but seeing it, I'm sure I must have at the time. But it just really seemed corny. And I don't remember hearing any other names. I'm curious to hear like who were the other uh, the other candidates. Well, there are two names that I heard, or the other wrestlers believed it was going to be at the time one was rick flair thought they were going to come out of the egg and the other one they thought was going to be the debuting undertaker oh that would have been horrific i know yeah now the thing with flair especially at that time was this 90 yep. um yep survive series 1990 so yeah thanksgiving 1990 okay so this I, I had it been flair coming out of there it would have been a oh my effing god right like holy shit flair's here but not in a turkey costume hopefully <laughs> you know if that robe would have come out of there and the playing of 2001 space odyssey i think that would have been like like an oh my effing god moment like wow uh you know it's and i don't know if that was maybe gonna be it and then pulled back but i'd never heard either of those names um I, well i shouldn't say i'd never heard it maybe if i did i certainly didn't register in my memory uh i just remember like the cringiness of watching poor hector doing this you know and thinking like oh man not what the industry needs right now mm. and it was just another thing that was digressing I understand from Vince's point of view to be fair I'll try to give the compendium point of view Vince believed in going after what he called the tweener <clears throat> the 10 11 12 year old because let's face it if you go to a show tonight yeah you might call a buddy up or so maybe take your wife but we're going to sell one or two tickets but if you bring your two sons and two of their friends and mommy and daddy and maybe your brother because he's a big fan uh now you're selling what six seven eight tickets so some economic wisdom there but you'd have to ask yourself like are those people is your brother going to come and your wife going to want to come if you're bringing a guy in, in a chicken cluster or a turkey out outfit out of an egg um yeah, the kids want to go, oh, great, this is great, Uncle James. But the, the rest of you are going, yeah, you know. So, you know, there's there's point, point counterpoint. Uh, I, my contention was then and is now that was taking wrestling so far in the wrong direction that, you know, and, and I don't know, like, from Vince's point of view, this was like, okay, we've got to get rid of the idea about Bruno and Dominic and all that great generation because, we, you know, we're going to do something different. It's – uh. I really can't say what was going through Vince's head. It just seemed to me that wrestling was off on this really as a comic book mark. I always thought wrestling was like comic books come to life that too, but like in a, in a bad way, you know, like the comic books you look at go like uh, Howard, the duck. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Sorry. I ain't reading that one. Um, you know, so it's uh, again, the point counterpoint, like I thought wrestling was heading off the tracks at that point. 
Uh, one more thing with Danny, Danny Spivey. You were in the building. Uh, I don't know if you are in the building, sorry. You were with the company WCW 1989, but were you in the building when Danny Spivey and Sid faces a couple of jobbers called The Avalanche no. and Mike Blackwell? Yeah. I, I didn't remember. Moose played this for me last night, and I had forgotten it until I watched it. And the one, like, I'm, there's several things I'm curious about. Like, first of all, you know, Danny, Danny's a tough guy, right? And you know, Sid, as big, you know, not necessarily the fighter, but the one time I went and got the squeegee to mm. when he, he was going to fight Pillman, right? Uh, you know, but I mean, you got a guy that size, cannonball shoulders, that massive chest of his, big thighs. You know, you start on on, on corking some some shots. It's you got to, and if you watch closely at the end. Sid's giving him shots in the ribbit ringside, uh, stiff ones. And Danny, again, Danny, Danny was stiff to work with, let alone like he's gonna <laughs> like just beat you up, you know. Uh, but boy, this he was either a tough guy. I'm curious, is that like was he just not trained at all, or did somebody tell him like just keep getting up, keep let getting me, up, let keep me fill up. you in, let me fill you in. So I've spoke to um only Teddy Long, who was actually involved in the match, actually, but other mm -hmm. people yes. who was in the who were in the building. Uh, the story goes is that this guy had it was his hometown. His family were in the crowd. He wanted to look good against Danny Spivey and Sid. <laughs> yeah, okay, uh, yeah. So, so he decides. Well, you know what? This is going to go well for me. Is I'm going to no sell everything. But here's the thing: he wasn't fighting back. He was just no selling no. everything. Then they put just him back down it, yeah. again. Yeah, and then Teddy Long starts yelling, "Kick his ass!" and just like making things <laughs> twenty times worse. And yeah. then uh, apparently, uh, in an interview that Danny Spivey gave uh, a few years ago, he said, "Listen, as bad as we beat that guy up in, you know, out of ringside, he got a bigger, he got a worse hiding when we took him to the back. He just they just bet. beat him until they just got tired of beating him up, essentially." <laughs> Well, you, you know, and this is what I told Moose last night because I, you know, having been in the business and knowing if you're the Twin Towers and you're getting this push as this monster team, whoever is booking in the back, whoever's running the dressing room, whoever the agents are, whoever's at the grill position, you're catching hell for. Like, if you got a guy, if they tell you to go out there and beat somebody up, you know, or in this case, this guy just keeps getting up. You don't have to be told. You know that everybody in that dress, like I told you about Bill Watts, team coming out of his ear backstage. Yeah. Uh, these guys, whoever's pushing this team, is losing their mind. And I'm sure the flares and the the elder statesmen in the dressing room are going, guys, you can't have this. Like, you got to knock this guy's ass down. Uh, it's, you know, if the guy, but you know, if, if based on what Danny said, if, if they went after him in the back, worse than what they did in the ring. I, did the guy ever stay down? Um, I presume his soul left his body at one point. Because, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, the guy said he, he just kept getting up. And I thought, man, like at some point, you're going to go, yeah, hey, I'll just stay down. It's, uh, golly. It's, there's there's, there's it, two versions of that video, right? So I don't know which one you saw, but the very last punch is either just before Danny throws it, the, the video freezes. Or the other version is Danny Spivey, I think he was left-handed as well. He just goes, mm -hmm. whoomph, and just catches him straight at the side of the head, and he sold that one. Whether he wanted to or not, yeah. he involuntarily sold that one. Like While Sid was holding him, and he's curled up like this, and then Sid just yeah. baseball pitches one right in the side of the head, and then he collapses. And then they took him to the back and gave him a bigger hiding. Okay, the one the, the clip that I saw, <clears throat> they ended up on the floor. Yep. 
And at ringside, that's where uh, uh, Sid is giving the the uh, the rib shots, the short rib shots. I was like, dude, I'm like, oh, short rib. You know, it's a uh, catch. That, that hurts. You get caught up under that like that. Um, and he ended up, I want to say, over the railing, but he was still standing. He was like on the other side of the railing, still standing. Uh, no, he was. Uh, he was still uh, the. I think he was sort of lent against the ring, but he was outside. Is he still at ringside? Ring. Okay. Yeah, he's still at ringside. Uh, of the two bits of video I've watched, they, they don't. Oh, they never end up over the railing. But uh, okay. But, but yeah, the one version is it cuts out Danny's last punch, and the other version that's harder to find includes yeah. Danny's punch, which is the best one. Yeah, yeah, I, I'd, I'd seen the full clip, but there was so much action going when they were both clubbing them. And I mean, let's face it, those two big guys. Uh, uh, yeah, it, you know, it just makes you wonder, like, thinking, again, how does somebody get put on the show? I don't care if everybody in that building is your family. Your job here is to get these guys over. You know, if you if you have any acumen to the work side of our business, your job is to go out there and show a little fire here wherever wherever they're going to give it to you. And then selling your ass off because this is obviously what the company's doing with this team. Uh, just like there were always guys that would be around like that. that you, you know, not they went very far in the business, but you'd see them and watch you watch their performance and think, like, why are they on the like? Why are they here? You know, like they and a lot of those guys it took me a while to learn it. You know, when you go to the ring, you could be planning a match for here or through the roof. As soon as you circle around. Uh, you can tell by a, gay, what, a way that a talent moves their feet, uh, how they move their body. And there's been a dozen, dozens of times that I've been in the ring and planning for a match maybe here. And in that first few seconds, yeah, we're going to take it down here. Because you know, I don't want this guy to drop me on my neck or blow my knee out or break my back or God knows what else. Um, but I, I'll say this, man, like Blackwell was, he, he must be a fairly tough guy because he took a, if they beat him worse in the back, he took a hell of a beating on camera, you know, and, and just kept getting up. It's like, man, cause you know, at some point, you know, I'm sure neither Danny or Sid wanted to really hurt this guy. You know, it's not the way you think in the ring, but at some point, like you can see, they clearly get both get pissed. I'm wondering if any of them said to him, stay down, stay down. Uh, you know, because as soon as you get back up, Whatever live round you just took, the next one's probably gonna be a little more alive. And yeah, I just watch him get up and get like, oh man, <laughs> uh, yeah. Hey, poor, uh, poor Sid and Danny getting 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 that call of the card that night, right? Yeah, I wonder if like at some point Danny and Sid were like, well, you know what, we might as well enjoy it. Yeah, oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. Danny Danny's a salty guy, right? Mm -hmm. He 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 could go if he had to. I'm not so sure how much Sid was or like had the desire to fight. But you know, again, you get a big guy like that throwing some fisticuffs. Yeah, damn it, it's gonna hurt. Mm. You know, it uh <laughs> we'll move on. Yeah, we'll, we'll, just good stuff. We'll move on. We'll go to the next match. Uh, I want to uh right, okay. So the storyline going through this pay-per-view, everybody, uh, if you watched it or not, I'll explain it to you, is that Owen Hart isn't turning up. Uh he's not in the arena. Yeah. Now, uh, I'll explain why at the end. Well, what the actual story was, but he legitimately was not in the arena, <coughs> and um, <laughs> so uh, the storyline is that uh, Jim Cornette can't find Owen, and my uh, Doctor Michael Hendrick, uh, Michael Hayes, Doc Hendricks is asking where he is, and then Gorilla Monsoon right. says, "Hey, you've got to find mm -hmm. a substitute." Anyway, uh, that happens throughout the show. I'm not going to keep bringing it up, and, apart from once, which I will because it's funny. Next match is Sid with Ted DiBiase versus Henry O. 
Godwin. Now, previously, it shows on Superstars that Godwin has slopped Sid with a bucket full of porridge, it looks like. Uh, he slops D- uh, Ted DiBiase twice, and then Sid power bombs Godwin. And then the story of the match is that Henry O. Godwin has a bad back from the power bomb, and that leads to the finish essentially. Um, just before you comment on the match, I don't know if anyone can confirm at home, but Henry Godwin's theme song, which is atrocious at this point, is just ding 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 ding, and then someone's going hoo wee, and I'm sure yeah. that's Todd Pettingill doing all the noises over it. Is that right? It sounds nice like his knocks. voice, so I'm thinking I think it was Todd who ended up contributing vocals, as it were. Yeah, because that'd be free. You're in the office, get down there and record He was not free. It's... Apparently he was making quarter of a million a year, Todd. No kidding. Yeah. No kidding. Good for him. Mm. Yeah, it's, uh... And that was his part-time gig. He was doing the radio show every morning as well. He, he was coining sure. it in that guy. Good, good for him. The thing that, that struck me out in this match is, you know, we all know how big Sid is, right? I mean, it takes one to look at him. But even more impressive is Mark Godwin, Mark's Henry Godwin. Mark Mark's a big boy, right? I mean, he's he's no small fry himself, and yet next to Sid, he looks like average sized. Uh, it's a real testament to how how big. Like it's sometimes difficult to try putting the words. Like if you try to describe to somebody standing next to Andre the Giant. Words don't do it justice. You had to see him. It was breath. It literally took your breath away. And Sid had that kind of like, oh shit, damn, he's a big boy. You know, like Taker, same thing. Um, Kevin Nash. I mean, a lot of guys in the business. Uh, but watching Mark look not small but fairly average next to Sid really put it in perspective. By the way, uh, Henry Godwin, Mark, he's he's a great guy. Um. You know, when you see him now, always got a big old smile on his face, just happy to be around the boys and see him. And he was always one of those guys, like when Steamboat and I were together, we got to work, he and his partner, quite often. And uh, Steamer loved working with him because they were big guys, could really get the heat. But they also were big guys that could bounce and move and get us over. Um, I always thought, like, anytime I saw my name on a list next to to Mark, you know, I had Henry Goblin, I was like, Night off, easy night. You know, you're gonna go out there and have a great match and not have to work too hard for it because he was just, you know, so impressive of a guy. But in this match with Sid, like what impressed me even more about him was if you watch him bouncing around and selling, you know, like when you talk to people like, hey, we're the best sellers in the business. Hey, Ricky Morton, Ricky Steamboat, this person, that person. Rarely would you ever hear a guy like Mark Henry Godwin, right? Um but man, he's 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 doing a great job getting Sid Vicious over. He really is. And you know, when it gets to the point of the end and he starts making the comeback on it, uh, to me, all of it was it was incredibly well done. Uh that, we'll, we'll go on because that was my takeaway in the whole thing. And watching that show from start to finish wasn't even like some of the matches that would be considered lackluster, say to the other matches that were on the card. I didn't see anything on the show last night that was like egregiously bad or out of out of place. I think it speaks more, you know, pretty much of the era that like everybody was, you know, working hard at their at their craft and and trying to give good performances out there for the audience. I think um, with uh, Mark Canterbury is his real name, isn't it? Yes, yeah. Mark Canterbury. Yeah. Uh, there were two things that I want to add uh, is one. I love the reverse DDT as a finisher. I just think it's a great finisher that didn't, apart from Sting as well. Yes. It's just no one ever seems to use, and I just think it's a great finisher. Um, and I think, and I'll, I'll sort of just like piggyback on what you said is that if you know what you're looking for 
Mark Canterbury, Henry Godwin, was very, very, very good. And I think maybe the character sort of masks that a bit, really. Yeah, yeah. definitely did. Like, I, I remember when I first saw the character, because I had worked with Mark extensively before that. And uh, like, uh, again, with the corny characters like I was talking about before. But there was something about that, like if you knew Mark, you know, the fact that he's from West Virginia and the kind of guy he is, it really did make that character work. That's like far less on that scale of corniness to me because it was fun to watch and he made the matches fun to watch. And, you know, like at that time, in that moment, I was just like, oh, God, but he's, he's so much more than that, you know. Uh, but like, if you talk to him, he said, Hey, I had to take a bucket of slop out and throw it on somebody and do one or two moves and done. Right. It was easy. Um, but he is, I, I think if you go back, you know, like I told Moose last night, we, you know, you get these questions like who's on your Mount Rushmore, you know, you're a legend or you're an icon or whatever. Um, rarely would a name like Mark Canterbury, Henry Godwin, Henry O. Godwin get thrown in there as like one of those workers. But I think if you go back and look at his body of work. Like you'll see more good matches than you'll see crapperoos or gimmicky matches. Uh, he, I, I asked Moose last night. I'd be curious to find out. Next time I see him, I'll ask him uh, uh, who trained him because he he clearly knew you know like what was uh what was up and down in the ring. Well trained. Let me just see if I can find that out for you. At Wikipedia. George South and the Italian Stallion. <laughs> there, well, there you go. And the Italian Stallion too. Yeah. So you you know, two guys that really knew their craft. Stallion died, though, right? Oh, gold. Now you're asking. I have no idea. Um, one second. Sorry, scintillating podcast material, me looking on uh, Wikipedia. <laughs> um, Gary, I can't even pronounce his surname, says he's still alive, 1957 born. Okay, good, good. I For some reason, I had it in my head. I haven't seen him since then. Uh, but uh, just another guy, we always call him Stallion. You know, hey, Stallion, Italian, Italian Stallion, uh, good guy. Uh, back then, that was, uh, even though it was, you know, not nationwide, like the NWA running like the Carolinas and Georgia, that there was a lot of long drives in those. You know, like, North Carolina is a very wide state, like Pennsylvania. So you could be in Charlotte and have an eight hour drive to get out, especially back then. If they were heading out to the coast, like, say, Cherry Hill or Cherry Point. Because there was no real big highway system to get you over there. So they had a whole bunch of back roads and stuff, uh, which is why uh, Ronnie Garvin would typically fly those those distance shots. But yeah, Stallion was always on those trips. But like uh, George South, by the way, this weekend was up at uh, uh, Altoona, PA, giving a seminar. And the, the guy that runs it was a good friend of mine. And I told him, I said, oh. George is going to give a great, great seminar. He He's one of those guys, you know, coming up in the business, it, never, like, it always seemed like there were two types of people. Somebody that wanted to be like, secretly everybody that gets into wrestling wants to be world champion. Uh, nobody goes, hey, I'm going to be world champion. I, at least back in my day, nobody was that, that brash. Uh, but secretly everybody in the business, nobody wants to be just the guy on the card. Everybody wants to be a, a, a star on the card. And George, though, had figured out far smarter than most of us you know just it's sort of like, again the tortoise and the hare thing if i just stay over here and just do my job and i can be at home every night and you know make good money and do the, like, he'll tell people I'm, i've i bought and sold three homes with with this you know losing all those matches mm -hmm. um because he clearly was and is talented enough to have been a major star in the business um he just he found a smarter way to do it 
we uh, well the end portion of the match is uh, Godwin gets a visual pinfall on Sid and then Ted DiBiase. I'm going to say something. Uh, sorry, interferes and then that leads to Sid winning. I'm going to say something that you might think controversial. You tell me if you think I'm off base. I never rated Ted as a manager. There's something about him that I just just comes off far flatter than when he was a wrestler. So in the mid '90s. He's wearing sort of dry, dreary suits. I mean, he's obviously a great talker and everything, but for some reason there's something that never worked for me as him with the manager. And he was the main manager for several years in the WWF. Yeah. No, I don't think I'll be saying – I think the same thing. And, again, I don't think that's necessarily being critical. Uh, I, I think, you know, again, like I said a while back, uh, some people like vanilla chocolate, some people like White House cherry. It's uh, – uh, for me, I having grown up and watching the Lou Albanos and the Grand Wizards and guys like that, uh, uh, and then old, like for me, Bobby Heenan, like, wow, what do you say? Just, just phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, and there's so much of that I think it's a tasting. The, the type of character that Ted played as a manager is very much Ted DiBiase. Like that's, that's him, you know? And he, uh, you know, as you, if you've been a, as prolific of a in-ring performer as, as Ted had been, there's, I, I think, a reticence when you're the manager because they, you're not the show, you're not the star, so you're off to the side someplace. And so, you know, Ted being, you know, that kind of a guy, like more laid back in real in real life, uh, I think you see a lot more of the real Ted DiBiase at ringside, albeit in character. But uh, that's more. I'd be surprised if Ted DiBiase would have gone out and been the over the top. Uh, doesn't have, nobody has uh, uh, the uh, Bobby the Brain Heenan wit. Uh, or the acerbity of, uh, say, a Jesse Ventura. And so, like, if you're going to try to compare against those guys, and you're obviously going to be compared against them, you might as well go a completely different way, and I think that's much closer to who he really was. But you're right, was not a flamboyant manager in the sense that pro wrestling managers typically are. Yeah, I mean, I mean, obviously, it doesn't help that he was given some of the worst people in the world to manage, like, <laughs> like bless him, Nikolai Volkov in 94. You yeah. know, and and um, uh, King Kong Bundy in '95 and stuff like that. He, he didn't have to. T- uh, anyway, I'm, I'm bringing in my own feelings there, but I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll move off. Uh, I also want to make uh, note that this is uh, WWF referees uh, dangerous Danny Davis, one of his very very last matches to referee as well. So I thought I'd just throw that mm. out there. Yeah. Uh, uh, did you know Danny really well? Yeah, fairly well. Okay. Yeah, I've seen him. Still see him occasionally. Good guy. Um, you know, I, I think he, again, like if you're a, a, a professional wrestling referee, most likely you wanted to be a wrestler and got in and hey, that's a little hard. I thought it was going to be or, you know, take up too much time or whatever. Uh, so when I saw Danny, like I, my recollections of Danny back then were when he got to go and suddenly do this character in some matches and he didn't care if he was winning or losing. He was getting in the ring and being able to you know have his fun that, that I think every wrestling referee harbors that inner whether they state it out loud or not would have loved to have been a wrestler on the card but danny's a good guy he was um he did jobs under like mr x or something like that like under a mask yeah. at one point and then he became yeah. his own character and with the referee thing with Breton right in the heart foundation wasn't he yes yeah yeah good uh, memory we shall uh we shall move on british bulldog versus bam bam bigelow uh updated for a freshly uh, updated look excuse me for a freshly turned davy boy smith you know with the whole short hair thing going on he power slammed diesel on raw a month earlier uh, was this part of the whole was this the thing that you were talking about earlier where all the bad guys including you just run roughshod it, 
over the baby yeah, faces. Davey, yeah, Davy Boy was involved in that. I'm pretty sure. Um, uh, that, that, by the way, was the loop we made whenever I had the pizza and he had the hands all over oh, his yeah. face. Uh, that that was on that loop. Um, so probably was yes. What surprised me in watching that match, Moose didn't set it up, and so I'm watching it initially as Bam Bam's the heel and Davy's the face, mm-hmm. and uh, I'm watching. I'm thinking like, why is he doing that? Like, like that's like the way Bammer was selling and stuff. I'm thinking like, that's he's he's backwards. And then Chris said, "Oh yeah, but by the way, uh, Bam Bam's the baby face." And I, so I, oh okay, got me back on track and looked at it. Was surprised. There were several things that stood out to me on that match. I always love Davy's work. Um, you know, not like going to be one of those technical guys, although he knew how to do all that. Uh, but the, the the strength stuff that he would put in, like early in the night when he or later in the night, one of the two where he vertical suplexed or tries and. Kevin's legs are out and he has to put him back yeah. down and then he comes back and gets it again. Really shows you his power. He was an incredibly strong guy. Um, but like I was a big fan of the Bulldogs because I thought like this is different. Like, you watch either of them hit the ropes and it's like they attack the rope. You know, they don't just lean into it. Um, everything was done like really crisp. Like I said earlier uh, prior about, you know, the Canadian wrestlers, Japanese wrestlers, they all have hallmarks that really stick out. And, uh, but watching Bam Bam, who's probably, I'm guessing at this point, 450 range, uh, moving around is the one point where he does the enzigiri, right? And But he doesn't just do it like, like you'd expect a 450-pound guy to do it. He snaps it, a quick snap over. Um, moving around, much like you'd expect to see like a Rey Mysterio move around or or Super Crazy or Hooventude, you know, somebody of that stature. Uh, you know, he really, like... Another point when he get, I think towards the end of the match where he gets cl- clipped and takes the rule out through the ropes. Uh, I, I kept looking at Chris going, like, look how athletic, amazingly athletically he athletic he is. Uh, you know, just really, really like blows you off the charts when you realize how big he is and you've stood next to him and realize how you know there's that famous picture of the triple threat of him in the back mm-hmm. and the three of us in front of him all look like his kids, like he's going to wrap his arms around <laughs> us. Uh, yeah, he's just a big, big guy and how he could move was amazing. And I thought those guys put on a really, really good performance for what type of match and where it was on that card. When you say attacking the ropes, that's exactly what I thought Bam Bam was doing because I, you know, I don't go back and watch wrestling very often and I suppose Mm. neither do you, you know, at least to, you know, full pay-per-views or anything like that. And I was looking at Bam Bam and he's... Law, he's, he's almost doing a back bump into the ropes and then launching himself outwards again. And I yeah. don't remember seeing anyone else do it like that. And, and in those rings, understand <clears throat> the WWF, I think, still uses the real ropes. Yes. And uh, it's part of the reason like Dominic taught us to always arch your arm over and lean into the rope, like, you know, with your side, because if it breaks, and it happened one time with Mick Foley, he and uh, Dominic were in the ring crisscrossing. And I see, you know, you're looking at the center, so I have a peripheral vision. You're seeing these two guys go opposite way. And I'm looking and like that, Mick's gone. He's hitting the <laughs> rope and he's gone. And then I hear this by my ear. You know, instinctively rolled away from it. Here it was the turnbuckle bolt had actually released when Mick hit the rope. And so that turnbuckle like flew, part of it killed me. It hit me straight on. But because of the way he hit the ropes, as fast as that happened, if he'd been hitting it like Bam Bam hit it, he'd have been straight out and like Rude did in, in Japan, landed on his head. Mm. Uh, but, you know, I'm sure Mick didn't even know what he did at the time. We were so young and green, but he tensed 
which made the rope tighten under his arm, which pivoted his body and landed on his hip out there. It's still a tough bump and a hard bump, but a lot better than landing on your head. Uh, so, yeah, you'd watch. You could tell, like, Larry Sharpen teaching him um, at the Monster Factory. That was the old acumen, but th- that type of hitting the ropes was based on cables, not rope ropes. You know, and as big as Bam Bam was, you know, whew, hitting the ropes that stiff and that hard with that much force, you know, those – those ropes, by the way, so everybody knows they get used over and over and over and over and over again until they fail. And then they, well, get rid of that one, put a new one on. Uh, so, you know, each time you're there, the land of monsters, every time that rope's getting hit, those fibers are getting stretched and pulled, you know, like sort of doing this on the inside. And it's really a crapshoot. But yeah, B- Bamber was, if you watch our match for the 97 pay per view in Pittsburgh at ECW, the November to remember, he, you know, he, he was so big, like the belly to belly running. He couldn't really get your arms around him. Uh, but he does such a masterful job of keeping me over as he's keeping heat on me. And like that match again was bam, bam, you know, and, and you see just how athletic he was. Not that you weren't impressed with it all along, but when you finally you're in the ring with him and seeing not just how the athletic side of it was always amazing, but realizing that he's also knowing that his role in this match is to get me over in front of my hometown crowd to get that pop. He was unbelievably professional in an industry that's very selfish. Uh, Bam Bam could have gone out there and done his thing, got himself over and at the end. Let me pin him. Uh, he didn't. He got me over in that match. He made me before he had me take him, which is incredibly rare in this business. And just, you know, what a pro, what a pro. Incredible. The match goes about 12 minutes. Uh, before I just go into the end bit, I, I miss the days when the reversal or the potential reversal of a sunset flip gets the people stood up. <gasps> you know, breathing in, come on, you can do it. And then, you know, bam, uh, bam, it reverses it. Uh, the, uh, well, you saw you saw on that. And that was something I pointed out to Chris last night. When you watch Bam Bam, and he does a great rolling, job because so rolling. many people do it badly when they go, oh, uh, uh, but no, bam. Yes. Yeah, he's really, really doing a fantastic job of looking like he's about to lose his balance, and then he slams yeah, right and, into it. Yes, and if you look, had he held that one second longer going back, he really was putting himself off balance to sell that move. Had he had he tried to hold it one more second, he probably would have lost his balance. Took it right to that edge. And then boom, and didn't just like sit down on it. It was like a boom, like like a like a car dropping on him. Yeah. Uh, just again, wow. Watching a big guy like that move around like that is like, <laughs> man. The uh, finish comes when Bam Bam misses a moonsault and Davey hits a series of moves and a sort of power slam. It's not like a traditional power slam on the shoulders, but it's more like a like if the uh, if a uh, Bam Bam was like running at him and that whole yes. thing. Um, he wins clean, Bulldog. Now. Uh, this may be the low-hanging fruit section of this episode of Franchise <laughs> University, but yes, uh, let me let me take you back a few months. So, uh, Bama is gone from WWF in November of this year, and if you if, from November leaving to six months earlier at WrestleMania 11, he's in the main event. He is wrestling Lawrence Taylor. Now, I know you're not mm-hmm. in the company when he's wrestling Lawrence yeah. Taylor. You turn up a few months later, a couple months later. And 
the theory going around was as a thank you for basically saving the pay-per-view. Uh, not saving, because obviously Diesel and Shawn Michaels was going to be a very good match as mm-hmm. well, and, and was. That Bam Bam, for taking the loss, was going to be rewarded with a big baby face push. He was going to be shot to the moon, you know, all these promises. That's the story that at least, you know, I as a fan have heard, and then it doesn't happen. And then just a few months later, he's losing clean and basically being a mid-card stepping stone for the likes of the British Bulldog to then go and face Diesel. Right. What happened, as best you know, between WrestleMania and by the time he's now losing clean? Good question. Uh, as well as I knew Bammer, uh, I don't believe we ever... T- you know, Bammer wasn't one to sit around and say, hey, well, hey, when I wrestled Lawrence, blah, blah, blah. Because that match, by the way, just a little footnote to that, not easy at all to do. Uh to take somebody from outside our industry, I don't care how long they had to get ready for it or whatever. You can see Bam. You, you never watch that match and think, okay, Bam Bam's in there with somebody who doesn't know what he's doing, right? It always looks like Lawrence is like right there and and really did keep it. My guess is in clean and losing clean that way to that match. That was the first thing I thought was, okay, they must be getting ready to repackage him and do something uh, because the match was competitive. It was close. They had just turned Davey, and so the, it's obvious Davey's getting over, uh, getting the push. But it's because it was that competitive, seemed like there was something more going to come from that. Uh, I, I I don't know. I, I'd recently learned in doing the uh, when I flew out to do the Bam Bam Dark Side of the Ring episode. I hadn't seen Shane literally since he was twelve years old, which is thirty years ago or more. Um, and you know, in your head, you still have, you see him in your head like this little kid running around. Uh, you know, so when I saw him, I'm like, oh my god! As soon as we looked, I looked at him and had gone out of the bathroom to take a piss. And I walked back in, and there's a bunch of people had come in in the interim time while I was out of the room. And as soon as we looked at each other, I was like, holy shit, Shane! Like it was like a, a clone of, of Bammer with hair mm. and Sans tattoo, uh, but he. Uh, you know, he had told me something in private, uh, some things in private that I had been unaware of. And uh, it really, really saddened me to hear that because the last time I told Chris, this, the last time that I recall seeing Bammer was at a uh, Frank Goodman show in New York. And it was in the after earlier in the day. So like the guys are filtering in and I forget what part of New York, but I could, I do remember like right outside the, garage like the the loading dock area where we came in there was a subway trestle that went overhead and i see scott coming down the street but he's dragging his bag it's not on wheels he's just dragging his bag behind him shoulders are all slumped and he's just down you know and i'd never seen the big guy like that so he's walking come closer and i'm waiting for him to look up and say hey troy you know give me a hug or whatever and he goes to walk right by me. And I went, what, you don't, you don't give your brother a hug anymore? He went, hey, Troy, and walked into the dressing room. So I knew something was wrong, and I followed him in. He took a chair and pulled the chair up against the wall and then just leaned his head into the wall. And I made everybody get out of the room. I said, you okay, big man? He goes, uh, just shook his head no. And he wouldn't talk after that. Um uh, as I'm trying to record, I don't remember if we said anything more that night. When he wrestled, he left immediately. Where I wrestled Raven that night, by the way. And uh, after he left, I was saying, is Scott okay? Is Scott, Scotty okay? 
And I didn't know. I just figured, well, I'll save in a week or two somewhere and, you know, catch up with them then. But there were a lot of things that were going on with Scott. And, I, and the reason I told all that was uh, things that Shane had told me that I hadn't been privy to for the last 20 years since he passed. I'm wondering if that there might not have been something like that showing its head a little bit in WWF. Because one thing about WWF at that time, even though they were sort of blind-eyed to like somebody shooting up or snorting up or whatever, uh, if you weren't in that right click, and I don't mean the click, I mean that that in that group that could do that, it was like really frowned upon. You know, like, oh, you can't, you're not allowed to do that. It doesn't matter what, what he's shooting over there. You're not allowed to do it. Um, so I, I wonder that. But there there had to be something that happened. Because I know that Vince, A, putting him in a position like that at WrestleMania with Lawrence, you wouldn't do it with just anybody. Because you wouldn't want to make Lawrence look bad. And you wouldn't put that match in that prolific of a spot. Uh, and then, the way, again, the way this match happened last night, very competitive, back and forth, both doing great. And then this, like, a bit of a swerve at the finish, Something certainly transpired between that. Uh, and I, off the top of my head, I'm not aware of what that is. Uh, but, you know, Scott would then go on. Uh, you know, he had half runs in WCW and ECW. When he came to ECW, um, whatever issues he may have had prior to that, that I wasn't aware of, and issues that he would have later, did not show themselves there. In fact, our biggest concern there was he would bring it up to me was we were worried about Chris. Candido and um, uh, he even suggested at one point that the three of us go and get a rapid this is long before I had any trouble with the Oxycontin and drugs were never my deal uh, that we all three go and get a rapid opiate detox just to get Chris to do it mm-hmm. I'm like I don't know to do that like <laughs> they're going to hook you up to the machines and shoot stuff into you that you don't need in you you know like I, it just didn't make sense to me uh, so like he was pretty for Bam Bam, pretty straight laced there, at, at least initially. And, uh, you know, the stuff that would come up later, I think is the stuff like this is after ECW when I see him in the, at the New York show. And then I start hearing different things, you know, then when he went missing, like nobody could find him. He had this business in, uh, like a sandwich shop or something in the Poconos, uh, they somebody went so far as to send the cops up there to see if he was okay, and the cops when he got there, the the doors closed and locked. Nobody ever saw Bam Bam again. Like Bam Bam just went like missing in the middle of all this, and not long after, you know, he ends up dying. So like there were obviously a lot of stuff that went on later. Um, not so much in ECW like, in his initial run there. And then having left to go to WCW, I'm wondering now, just in a long-winded way, was there something that they were seeing then or hearing or being alleged and they thought better pull back? I, I don't know. I'd be really interested to find out. Uh, I'll I'll tell you a story that Dutch told me. So this is also in 95 when Bam was still there. And mm-hmm. uh, he said that, so this is Dutch telling uh, me, he said it on the show, that one day they were doing the drug tests and uh, Bam does it, thinks he's got away with it. So then he has a great a big old chong on a reefer. And he's like, yeah, nice one. You know, mm. there we go. The drug thing is anyway. Then they test him again. Mm. And uh, he gets popped for it and Vince suspends him. for th- This is actually a good story. Uh, I know it doesn't sound like yeah. it's a good story, but it's, it's a good story. Then he essentially gets uh, suspended for 30 days. 
And not only would he be sent home, but the guy he's working with will be sent home as well. Bam goes to the office, goes to Vince and says, listen, keep me on the road. There's no need to punish the guy I'm working with. Dutch can remember the guy he's working with. There's no need to punish the guy I'm working with as well as me because you're going to cost him a payday as well. So just keep me on the road and don't pay me and I'll work anyway. Mm. And Vince was so yeah. impressed with it that he just went, yeah, fine. Great, great attitude to you know being caught and uh, that's what he ended up doing. So he ended up sort of like saving a month's worth of pay for uh, his opponent yeah. as well. I don't know who that was though. I, I don't either, but that... Yeah, I had not heard that story before, but that would doesn't surprise me at all with Scott. He, uh, if Scott liked you, uh, you you had a, a a good henchman behind you. If he didn't like you, it was either nonchalant, ignore you, or if necessary, you know, take it up. You know, that, that's the kind of guy Scotty was. Uh, so to hear that that story again, I've never heard that before. But I wouldn't doubt that that it's completely true. First of all, I wouldn't question Dutch, but also uh, just knowing Scotty like I know him. Uh, that would be typically in character for for Scott Bigelow. Um, but yeah, I mean, again, that would be the case. So the, clearly there was something going on there with that around that time. So I'm wondering if that didn't have something to do with it, that that, that, that big push never later transpired. Maybe. Uh, we Well, maybe someone out there knows. So if you do, please let us know in the comments. Uh, one more fact, and then I will, sh- uh, and then I will let you shut down the podcast. Uh, Bam Bam Bigelow is actually going to lose to the debuting Gold Dust at the next In Your House. That was the In Your House for, um, I think that was in is that in Winnipeg, Canada, and um, awful, one of the worst shows that yeah. WWF. So the, <laughs> we should do that one day. But apparently, after the Bulldog Diesel main event, it was so bad that Vince McMahon, <laughs> who was doing commentary, grabbed his headset, threw it on the floor, and went horrible. <laughs> Yeah, and, and the worst yeah, thing was there were three more matches, <clears throat> dark matches afterwards that they had to do. Anyway, um, oh. <laughs> so uh, Bam Bam doesn't end up on the pay per view, and then Marty Jannetty ends up doing the favors to the debuting Goldust because obviously Goldust is debuting. You know he's not going to be losing. And yes. uh, one more fun fact, just because I mentioned Goldust, is that his original finisher was a loaded glove heart punch like Stan the Man Stasiak, and which I didn't know either. Uh, for now, though, we've yeah. reached um, we've reached our limits for the podcast. So, in the next podcast, we're going to be doing uh, we're actually going to be starting with a little guy called Dean Douglas facing Razor Ramon, and we'll take it from there. But for now, Shane, do you want to do the outro? Absolutely. I appreciate everybody tuning in, getting a little knowledge from Franchise University. But for now, class dismissed. <laughs>